As always, I'm happy to be here with you today to see the remembered faces, to meet new people, and to worship in your beautiful sanctuary. So, once again, it's Christmas time, or to be more inclusive, the holiday season. This is one of those years when bleak midwinter may seem more appropriate than a season to be jolly. And not everyone feels jolly this time of year anyway. In the Christian calendar, we are smack in the middle of Advent, the season of preparation for the coming of Christmas. Once this was a somber period of reflection and penitence, in the Middle Ages, for example, people fasted for the Christmas Lent, and dancing and marriage were forbidden. For many today, it is a time for shopping, wrapping gifts, addressing cards, baking, decorating, preparing for visitors, planning for travel, a bustling, busy time. It doesn't involve fasting for most of us, and may indeed be a time of overindulgence. For those who love Christmas wholeheartedly, it may be the happiest time of the year. Others find it to be a difficult time and can hardly wait until the holidays are over. Our culture has fostered such high expectations for this season that they are seldom met. Another story I may have told you before. As a young single woman, I purchased my personal vision of Christmas. It was a long playing record of Christmas songs by the Norman Luboff Choir, but it wasn't the music I was after. It was the album cover. On this cover, a beaming family of four put the finishing touches on a beautifully decorated Christmas tree. The ornaments as carefully placed as if by a professional designer, as I assumed they were. The lights worked. There were no evergreen needles or broken glass on the floor. The mother wore a green velvet dress and high-heeled pumps. The father wore suit pants, a starched white shirt, and a necktie. The little boy had on blue sleepers and the little girl a ruffled 90. Not a hair on any of their heads was out of place. That was what I wanted for Christmas. And I got it, sort of. The husband, the little boy and girl in adorable night clothes, and even the green velvet dress. Now, we've loved every Christmas tree we've ever had, and every Christmas, too. But we haven't always been smiling or well-groomed or able to get all the lights to work at the same time. Still, there have always been moments when life seemed even better than the album cover, and I thought I heard 
not the Norman Luboff choir, but the angels sing. That's not what our Christmas looks like anymore. We won't be wearing anything like that family on the album cover when we put up our Christmas tree. And of course, the little children are all grown up. Even our grandchildren, four boys rapidly moving into manhood, tower above us now. There are plenty of ways to feel about Christmas, and I have experienced many of them. I know I'm not the only one. Many people have unhappy memories, personal losses, lack of resources, or troubled lives, which prevent full participation in the festivities. Depression affects others. This year, national and world events so serious that they overshadow most everything else affect us all. Theological barriers to celebrating a holiday so steeped in Christian mythology play a part for some. Now you may ask, as people do, why do Unitarian Universalists celebrate Christmas anyway? Well, there's some good reasons. One, to celebrate the birth of a baby is a reminder to celebrate the birth of every baby, to try to give every child born the gift of a life of safety, love, meaning, and purpose. How desperately that message is needed now. Sophia Lyon Foss says it well, and I quote her words in part, for so the children come, and so they have been coming. No angels herald their beginnings. No prophets predict their future courses. No wise men see a star to show where to find a baby that will save humankind. Yet each night a child is born is a holy night a time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping. Another reason to celebrate the birth and therefore the human nature of the man called Jesus who has so influenced the world, although his life story and his teachings have often been perverted in the process. A third reason, it has become an American cultural celebration that just can't be ignored. And who doesn't like to give gifts to those we love? There is a reality, though, to be observed and celebrated, which underlies all the celebrations of the season. Our lives and the life of our planet depend on the sun. Its apparent departure at the midnight of the year has evoked deep fear, and it is no wonder that our pagan forebears lit bonfires on the hill to coax it back. 
they celebrated with great joy and festivity when this worked year after year after year. I am keenly aware of my pagan roots in the days of early darkness and no amount of disillusionment, commercialism, or cynicism can deter me from celebrating the solstice. I have been known to succumb to the Christmas blues, but I don't think there's such a thing as solstice blues. Wherever there are seasons, people have celebrated the solstices and equinoxes, those points in the year when the seasons turn. And the new year has been and is celebrated someplace at each of those times. Spring planning ceremonies and festivals, midsummer night's revelries, fall agricultural festivals, and the festivals of light, which mark the winter solstice. It occurs to me today that whenever I've talked about the dark days and the end of the season, that the sun seems to come out. So I may start taking credit for it. <laughs> January 1st, now celebrated worldwide as the beginning of the secular year, was first designated as New Year's Day by the Romans in 153 before the Common Era. In the Middle Ages, Christians changed it to December 25th, which they had decided to honor as the birthday of Jesus, who was probably born in the spring. They couldn't keep people from celebrating the solstice, so they co-opted it. When the Julian calendar gave way to the Gregorian in the 16th century, New Year's Day went back to January 1st. Now, of course, the Chinese New Year's on a different cycle, but it's still a midwinter holiday. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, known as the birthday of the world, falls near the autumnal equinox. Hanukkah, a minor Jewish festival, has been elevated to greater importance in this country where Christmas is so ubiquitous. And of course, it is a festival of light. Many peoples, many faiths celebrate the coming of the light with festivals, somewhere around the turning of the seasons and the return of the sun. How natural that we should punctuate the long, dark evening of the year with sparkling lights and shiny ornaments and focus on a Christmas star in the night sky. John Westerhoff has said, as Advent, a season of watching and anticipation, of living prepared, of waiting in hope, of giving up control, draws to a close. Christmas the birth of a possibility approaches. I like the idea of Christmas as the birth of possibility and carry that feeling with me through the holidays. The idea of New Year's resolutions relates to this idea of possibility, of hope and change. 
As we move through this season, may we be open to possibility, the possibility of wonder, the possibility of love, the possibility of renewal, and the possibility of the future. This poem by David Bumbaugh speaks of possibility as well. Christmas is an invitation to see in the dark corners of our lives the light of hope, to discover the meanings hidden in each of us, to find in the ordinary a vision of the extraordinary, to be transformed, renewed, recreated, to create out of our own hope and expectation a new chance for ourselves and the world. Christmas is an invitation to let the scales fall from our eyes, to see each other as we truly are, each the agent of the other's redemption. When so much uncertainty and turmoil intrudes upon our lives, we may feel inclined to withdraw from others, to disengage from life, rather than to join in celebration. But these are times that more than ever call upon us all to be engaged. Indeed, I think of faith as engagement with life. All of us engage with life to some extent and in some way. But when we disengage, we may do that in different ways. But faith, whatever our beliefs, calls us to engage, to participate in the world around us. Faith comes not through intellect, says Marjorie Bowen Wheatley, but through engagement with others, seeing the spirit of love and renewal and hope through people, and faith asks us to be open to life, to participate fully in life as it unfolds before us, even in the midst of uncertainty and turmoil. There are many ways in which we can engage with life. Work and nurturing relationships are ways which keep us busy. But even when we are busy, it is worthwhile to make the time for other things. Poetry, art, music, dance, all of these, whether participated in expressly or appreciatively, whether we create the art or just enjoy it, help us to rise above the troubles of the day, personal or cultural. Storytelling, writing, painting, drawing. All of these, whether done alone or with others, lift us above the ordinariness or the turmoil of our lives and help us to meet issues of the day refreshed and strengthened. So too may reading, listening, looking, and appreciating. When shared with others, they help to build community, drawing us closer to others, and helping to ward off loneliness and despair. These may or may not be seen as spiritual practices, 
as much as the more formal practices, prayer, meditation, participation in services of worship. All of these feed the spirit and provide much-needed composure in times of trouble. I suggest that finding ways that work to participate in the holidays may feed the spirit as well. And when we are in, busy in the crush of holiday activities, if we can't engage actively in these practices, we can look to the possibility of doing so in the long winter days to come. Our faith does not require us to be jolly or even to deck the halls with boughs of holly, but it is a faith of hope. You may think I got the idea for my sermon title from the carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, with its talk of Satan's power and might and the Savior come to free us from it. But no, actually I saw the words comfort and joy on the front cover of Martha Stewart Living Magazine. <laughs> and I thought, boy, is that just what we need. Then the refrain started going through my head. Good tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. I couldn't stop it from going through my head, but I couldn't remember what song it came from or any other words. I looked in our hymnal, but of course it wasn't there. So I looked in our previous hymnal, Hymns for the Celebration of Life, and of course it wasn't there. Then I looked in the old red book, Hymns of the Spirit, which we sang from in the 1950s, and wasn't there. My consultant, that is, my husband, couldn't really think of the words either, but at least he knew it was a carol, not a hymn. So I went to the fount of all information, if not wisdom, the internet, and found the carol. Now, it may be in some hymnals, it just doesn't fit into ours theologically. But wherever we find our inspiration, may we find tidings of comfort and joy in the celebration of the season. I don't suppose anyone was puzzled by the turbulent times reference in the title. You probably know what that means. There's so many things we can't control in the world around us. I recently clipped this quotation and posted it on the refrigerator. When you can't control what's happening, challenge yourself to control the way you respond to what's happening. That's where your power is. May your holidays bring you a measure of comfort and joy and a sense of possibility. I close with this poem. Pin your hopes on an evergreen tree, garland it with joy. One shining night, place a star on top for peace forevermore. <laughs>